bless you. Thank you, April. Thank you, guys. Good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. Amen. So God bless you guys. Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 17. As we take a look uh, one last time at the Mount of Transfiguration narrative, we've been in uh, this section of the Transfiguration, verses 1 through 13. Now, this is our third week. And there's, I, I'm going to try to wrap it up today. Um, maybe there's more here that, that the Lord needs us to see, but this morning I want to wrap up just one last insight here into Matthew uh, 17, uh, verses 1 through 13. Let, let's, let's stand, if you're able, in reverence for the reading of God's Word. I want to read verses 1 through 13 again, the entire scene, but I want to focus today on verses 9 through 13, Okay. Matthew 17, beginning in verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Let's pray. Father God, we do praise you for your word. And this scene, this narrative uh, that Matthew is sharing with us of the transfiguration of your son to show us his true divinity and his true glory. Wow, Lord, it is. there's so much that you're showing us here about the the true nature of our salvation. And so, God, this morning, we, as we, we, we listen to you speak to us, I pray, Lord, you open our hearts to hear clearly. Jesus is teaching his disciples here at the end of this scene that suffering must come, and that suffering will be the higher revelation than even his transfiguration on the mountain. And, Lord, that's hard for us as sinful humans to understand. Suffering is not what we desire. Suffering is something we avoid. Yet, Lord, in your Son, suffering is what redeems us and shows your divine glory in ways that we cannot fathom. So, God, open our hearts this morning. Speak to us in your word, we pray. This is your time, Father. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Imagine what it'd be like after a great and miraculous event like this occurred, right? Jesus' transfiguration. You were there witnessing it. You were there experiencing it. We've looked at this now for two weeks, and last week we looked at the physical and the spiritual terror 
that the disciples experienced in that moment. Y'all remember looking at that last week. I mean, I, I just trying to, uh, trying to envision in my mind what it would be like if Christ was in front of us physically in this moment in his transformed, glorious state. We could imagine that we would shout and sing and praise, but Scripture reminds us every single time God chose himself, well, how do men react? They react in terror and they prostrate themselves before his holiness. That's what we're hap- what's happening here. And now, uh, verses 9 through 13, as the disciples were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructs them one more time. Today's passage is going to take us further into the, the, the after effects, the, the consequences of this grand vision that they witnessed of Jesus' glory. I mean, Jesus, here in verse 9, he teaches his disciples what the results of his revealed glory will be. I mean, his church will now testify to the glory of our Lord. That's what verses 9 through 13 are going to get us to see. Jesus is now using this teaching moment to say, you have now seen my true nature. You have now seen my true deity transfigured before you. Now you're going to take this and be witnesses of this glory. But you must do so under my direction. I mean, Jesus is saying his church will testify to this glory of his law, of our Lord, but will do so in ways that are contrary to the expectations of men. I mean, Jesus is going to further be revealed through his suffering. These, these disciples are coming down off of the mountain after a glorious event, but Jesus is saying that is not the pinnacle of revelation. This is not the highest moment of my revelation. The Father has something greater planned, and it involves great suffering. Hearing the contrast here? You're on top of a mountain, and you have this divine spiritual encounter with Moses and Elijah and Jesus the Son being spoken of by the voice from heaven. Yet Jesus is saying there's something greater coming. And it's suffering. Not only will I suffer, but my, my, uh, my, the prophet who came before me, John the Baptist, suffered. Likewise, church, you will suffer. The church will share in Christ's suffering. And this shared suffering will be God's means to further reveal his glory to the world. How many of the church like to hear that? Some of you are giving me blank stares like, what? We're called to proclaim Christ, but we're going to suffer in the process. Mm -hmm. That's what Jesus is telling us here. Isn't that wonderful? Let's take a look here. Let's look here in verse 9. See, actually we can go back in verse 2 of chapter 17. Jesus shows himself to his disciples. Remember, Peter, James, and John were with him. And in verse 2, Jesus' face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. That was what happened on the mountain. That's what we would like to do, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we like to like point to the cross and Jesus shine himself to the world right now? That's, that's what we would like to see. Now, now, in, in medieval times, the medieval understanding of this passage, uh, quote from St. Augustine, he says that the transfiguration is a figure of the purity of the church to which it was said by the prophet, though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. That's an allegorical interpretation that Jesus' transformation or his transfiguration here of being bright and light was an allegory of the purity of the church. 
That's what the medieval translation would have been of this. I think there's something deeper there. I don't think the allegory does quite justice to this passage. So let's dig into this. I mean, verses 9 through 13 tells us what happened after the transfigured glory of Jesus showed who the real Jesus was as the veil of sin was temporarily removed, that that veil of sin that blurred the true glory of our Father and of His Son, temporarily in this moment it was lifted so that the disciples saw the true nature of our Lord. I mean, Jesus here is the real light and who makes Himself commonly known to everyone. I mean, this light of Christ is accessible to everyone and does not refuse this light to any creature. Jesus does not refuse his light. It's, it's there. Why is it that we don't see it? The light of God is the brightest. His light is not hidden from anyone since it's set forth in an open place. It's, it's there. And the only reason that God's light is hidden until this particular moment on the mountain is not the fault of God holding back His light. It's also that the sin of man blinds us to that light. God permits the light to be hidden by because our weakness is there. It, it, this light is hidden by our sinful weakness in being able to see it. This is the failure of our human responsibility to seek after and to look for God's glorious light. There is, there's an aspect of human responsibility in seeing the true nature of our Lord. And God permits the blindness in our souls from seeing that perfect glorious light. That's what the problem is. I mean, this is why as many people struggle. Why hasn't Jesus revealed himself to me? Why hasn't the Holy Spirit spoken to me? Well, perhaps it's because there's this veil of light or of sin that's, that's hindering the light. Perhaps there's this barrier that is hindering us from truly witnessing who God is and understanding and seeing the light of Christ. And God permits that. Until there's a moment where we can witness this and, and fall prostrate before Him with humility and brokenness, that's, that really is the moment that God's glorious light is somehow even possible to see. I mean, yet Jesus here commands His disciples, let's look at verse 9, what does He see? They're coming down the mountain, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Jesus is telling his disciples, do not tell anyone what happened until after the resurrection. I mean, Jesus commands his disciples to delay this about revealing and speaking about this glorious heavenly light that they witnessed. And why is that? Jesus commanded them, tell no one until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. He's giving, he's giving criteria here. Jesus explains to his disciples in his authority that he has the authority to determine when and where and how the world will know about his glorification on the mountain. Wouldn't you and I like to just go out and witness to everybody what we see and how we experience our Lord? That's what I would like to do. And we should, and we, and we are going to be, have that privilege to speak and to witness and to evangelize and tell the world about who Jesus is. But here in verse 9, we see evidence that Jesus limits his disciples in this time. 
I mean, why does he do this? His authority determines when and where and how the world will know about him. And this, what this is, this will reveal to the confused and the hard-hearted soul something that he or she cannot see or understand. This is perhaps why. Jesus is saying, hold off on your excitement. Don't tell everybody about this yet because there's, there's some reasons. I mean, think about this. Jesus is God incarnate. That's what we saw on the mountain of transfiguration. The divine glory is shining. His deity is revealed. But God in the flesh dwelling among men is something that sinful men cannot comprehend yet. We still struggle with that, don't we? I mean, Jesus does this in verse 9. He he hinders his disciples to prepare them for the role that the church will have after he ascends to heaven. But what we see here in verse 9 is that revelation is God's divine privilege. We saw this last week. Revelation is God's divine privilege. We are privileged to be a part of it. But God decides when, where, and how. Only after His resurrection and ascension will the disciples be allowed to spread the gospel. Jesus makes clear that the time is not yet here. Only after he ascend, only after he comes out of the grave and up until the time of his ascension will the time be right. Only then will the Holy Spirit be poured out among the church, giving these men the authority and the blessing to be the light that the dark world desperately needs. Remember in the book of Acts chapter two at the day of Pentecost, that's when the Holy Spirit is poured out on his church. Then and only then are they commanded preach freely and go and tell the world about this Savior. So at this moment coming down the mountain, Jesus is holding back the reins a little bit. I think there's reasons here for that. Why does Jesus delay this? Jesus does this often. This is not the only time in verse 9 that he delays the preaching and and the witnessing of his glory. We see evidence of this. If you're taking notes, we see it in Matthew chapter 8 verse 4. Back in Matthew 9, verse 30, 12, verse 16, chapter 16, verse 20, and now here in chapter 17, all the other gospels have evidence as well. There are times that Jesus says, do not tell them what just happened. Why does he delay this? Why does he delay his disciples in in beginning their ministry of proclaiming the gospel? Last week, we discussed that God's timing regarding revelation, again, is his divine privilege. God's will was that Jesus Christ and his resurrection would be the primary revelation of salvific, if you want to use that word, glory, salvation glory. That is what God wanted the world to see. He wanted them to see his resurrection first before they understood the transfiguration But there's practical reasons here at play also about Jesus and his strict warning. I mean, his warning to his disciples is because the idea of the Christ or the Messiah, even to the disciples, was widely misunderstood. The population had a preconceived idea of who the Messiah would be. And if the disciples went and shared this moment prematurely, then there would be further confusion amongst the people about the true nature of the Messiah. I mean, more so, I think the disciples who live with Jesus daily, think about this, they also misunderstood him. 
They were with him every single day and they still didn't quite figure him out. So why would Jesus give them permission to go and preach and explain what the, the glorious event on the mountain when they themselves were confused? How many of y'all feel confused about Jesus every now and then? Some of you are honest. Some of you are just, no, I'm, I'm holy. I know Jesus. I'm confused every day, folks. I don't know. I, I depend on the Lord to tell me who he is just about every day because trust me, I get it wrong too. In my feelings, in my emotions, and in some things that we read and some things that we hear in podcasts and different kind of things. I mean, we can get all confused, can't we? Absolutely. This is why Jesus is he, he's teaching the disciples here in verses 9 and following to depend upon him and his timing. I mean, think about it. Here's evidence of how the disciples misunderstood him. Remember, what was Peter doing here on the mountain of transfiguration? What was his reaction? He wanted to erect three monuments on the spot. That was how he reacted to Jesus. And Jesus said, no. Even the voice from the cloud, remember, said, stop it. This is my son who I will please listen to him. So if the disciples had been given free reign to go and share this moment, they would have been confused. Not only were they confused, they would have confused many others. So Jesus was holding this back. I mean, Jesus intends to establish here not temporary monuments on a mountain. He intends to establish monuments to God's glory in the hearts of men instead. The world can't figure that out yet. Now we see it another time in Matthew chapter 9, verses 30 through 31, what happened when when two blind men were healed and these men did not listen to Jesus' warning. Here's what Matthew reminds us in, in chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. These two blind men were healed by our Lord, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. And what happened? Confusion. Jesus couldn't minister there anymore. He had to move on. So by prematurely proclaiming the glory of what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration, there would have been more confusion, and Jesus' ministry would have been derailed a little bit, and he would have had to regroup and restructure his plans. And he was trying to keep this under control. So what happens? So here in Matthew 17, verse 9, I mean, remember, Jesus, he warns sternly not to share about this event on the mountain until after he rose from the grave. But now when we follow down here in verses 10 through 12, here's the response of the disciples to this delay. Verse 10. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Remember, who did they witness on the mountain? Not only Jesus, but Elijah and Moses were there. And Jesus is hindering them, and their response is, well, why? Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. And verse 12, but I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. See, the disciples here are reacting to Jesus' hindrance, his delay of their ministry by saying, but wait a minute, we've been waiting for Elijah. Didn't we just see Elijah? So why do we have to wait? Here Jesus explains to these, these confused disciples one more time that the genuine Messiah, the true Christ, is not who the popular opinion of men thinks he is. I mean, Jesus echoes here in this verse what he taught the disciples back in Matthew 16, verses 21 through 28. Remember, the Christ must suffer. 
And so verses 10 through 12 here, he's reminding them and echoing to them. Yes, you did see Elijah, but let me explain exactly what you saw. What you're seeing here is that suffering must come. I mean, this question from Jesus' disciples, then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? It, it, it shows three things. It actually shows two things. First, that these disciples are still learning about who Jesus is. And secondly, they're still learning the true meaning of Malachi's prophecy concerning the return of Elijah and the coming of the Messiah. What they're remembering is Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And they would have known that from childhood. And wait a minute, we just saw Elijah, so that means that the day of the Lord is here. Now they're confused. I mean, the scribes and the teachers of the law were even confused. <laughs> I mean, these they were more confused than these unlearned disciples of Jesus as they interpreted Malachi's prophecy literally. Literally. I mean, they were looking for the literal return of Elijah, the great prophet who was to be take who was taken into heaven. You remember how what happened to Elijah? If you want to flip over to 2 Kings chapter 2, that's actually in, uh, included in your bulletin if you need it. I think it's I think it's helpful because these disciples were confused about the coming of Elijah for us to look at not only Matthew 17, but also let's hold side by side 2 Kings chapter 2 and see the the, the narrative of Elijah being taken into heaven. Let's look uh, at 2 Kings chapter 2. We're not going to read it all. Um, let me just read a few verses, but if you've got it there, you can take notes. I'm going to point out a few things of comparison between what's happening in 2 Kings 2 with what's happening in Matthew 17. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, verse three, and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. What do we see here? I think we see some parallels. We see Elisha, the successor to the great prophet Elijah, traveling with Elijah to this understood end of Elijah's ministry. The Lord will be taking you to heaven. But what is it? But notice what they run into in verse three. The sons of the prophets who were in Bethel, they knew somehow what was happening. And Elisha's caution was, yes, I know it. Shh. You see, this is a common practice. Even before Jesus kind of shushed the disciples, even Elisha had to temper down these sons of the prophets. What's happening here? In 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1, Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. They were following the Lord's voice. And there's three different areas in chapter two that they go to. And the scene repeats every time they go to Bethel, then to Jericho, and finally to the Jordan River. And every time Elisha follows Elijah, wishing to stay near his teacher, just like the disciples of Jesus want to stay near him. But this sounds a lot like that, right? 
But what happens in each scene as, as the two prophets, Elijah and Elisha, are traveling, they run into these sons of prophets every location. And, and these sons of the prophets met them in each place. And somehow they also knew that the Lord would take Elijah away in a whirlwind. Who are these sons of the prophets? I mean, these sons of the prophets in the Old Testament, uh, particularly first and second Kings, uh, they were, they, they kind of hounded the ministries of Elijah and then Elisha had to deal with them regularly. Kind of like the way Jesus had to deal with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Very similar. What were they doing? They, the, the sons of the prophets, they were a religious school with connections to the prophet Samuel. And you can see this back in 1 Samuel chapter 10 if you're taking notes. In other words, the sons of the prophets were kind of a, a, a sect. We are the followers of the great prophet Samuel. And they had these little pockets, these little communities all over the country. And everywhere that Elijah and Elisha go, they run into these sons of the prophets who give them misery. Kind of like the way Jesus and his disciples ran into the Pharisees and the scribes. You see some comparison here? Notice in verses 3 through 5 of 2 Kings chapter 2 that the sons of the prophets somehow knew what God was about to do with Elijah, taking him away. But every time, all three times, Elisha's charge to them was, yes, I know it. Shh, keep quiet. There's a timing involved in all of God's ways. And even though God spoke through Elijah and he spoke then through Elisha, God was not wanting to speak through these sons of the prophets. <laughs> Be quiet. Don't ruin what God is doing. I know perhaps in your religious practice, you are hearing from God in what's happening here, but the timing is not yours. The timing and the place is God's. Jesus is not doing anything particularly different in the gospel of Matthew and the other gospels than what has always happened with the prophets. I mean, likewise here in 2 Kings chapter 2, let's drop down to verses 9 through 13. And we're going to see here what actually happens. In chapter 2 verses 9 through 13, I think we can compare Elijah's taking up into heaven with Jesus' transfiguration and ascension and, and the struggle that his disciples had. Let's look here in verses 9 through 13 of 2 Kings chapter 2. When they had crossed, going to the river, when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Verse 10, and he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. Notice this is the similar kind of conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. They would ask Jesus for revelation of things. They would ask Jesus for great uh, moments of insight. And Jesus would say, you don't know what you're asking. Elisha was the same way with his teacher, Elijah. And Elijah says, you don't know what you're asking here. Then in verse, see, what's let's read verses 11 through 12 here. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, verse 12. And Elisha saw it and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. 
And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Notice Elijah tells Elisha, if you are humble enough, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. In other words, it was not up to Elijah for Elisha to see this event. It was up to God to allow Elisha to see this event. But Elisha also had a responsibility to be humble and accepting of the outcome. Do I see it? Do I not see it? If the Lord permits me to see it, wow. But if the Lord does not permit me to see it, then so be it. This is what Jesus, I think, was trying to teach his disciples. You have just witnessed a glorious and miraculous event. It's not that you now have the right to go witness and tell everyone. Instead, take hold instead of the fact that God has given you favor enough to witness what happened to me on the mountain of transfiguration. You see, the, I, I think there's a comparison here that, that's very clear. I mean, because Elijah, as he talks to Elisha, he tells him, you have asked me a hard thing. And then Elisha is charged with whether he will have the purity of heart to see God's action as Elijah is taken up in the whirlwind. And likewise, in Matthew 17, verses 10 through 12, I mean, Jesus speaks to his disciples of how the scribes and the Pharisees did not have the purity of heart to see that Elijah had already come. Some would also lack the purity of heart to see Jesus' transfiguration or even His resurrection and the glorification that comes from that. Go back to Matthew 17, verses 10 through 12. And Jesus is reminding them, you know what, you thought that Elijah was coming. And the disciples asked Him, then why did the scribes say that the first Elijah must come? Remember, the disciples were listening to the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus says in verse 11, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they, being the scribes and the Pharisees, did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. Now notice Jesus is saying here in verse 11, the scribes and Pharisees did not have the purity of heart to recognize that Elijah had come. But you disciples, you were given the privilege of seeing Elijah and seeing Moses and seeing me on the Mount of Transfiguration. Take heart in that and relish in that. But also even further, it wasn't just that they witnessed Elijah and Moses on the mountain. They actually witnessed the coming of Elijah in John the Baptist. How? Look here at the end of verse 12 and 13. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. These disciples would have to not only see Jesus as he's transfigured on the mountain, they're going to also have to recognize that suffering was part of John the Baptist's revelation or God showing them that John the Baptist is the returning Elijah. See, as Elijah goes up into heaven in the whirlwind, that's how everyone expected him to come back. But John the Baptist came and he was the Elijah prophesied to come. That requires humility of heart to witness 
that requires God's divine privilege to reveal. Right here in verses 11 and 12, he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things, but I tell you that Elijah has already come. In other words, you're asking for something that's already happened. And they, being the scribes and the Pharisees, did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. Notice that in Jesus' response, he says, they did not recognize him. So just as the crowds of people and these learned scholars of Mosaic law, the scribes and the Pharisees, they did not recognize John the Baptist as the returning Elijah. Likewise, they would not recognize Jesus as the prophesied Messiah. So why is Jesus hindering the disciples in verse 9? Well, if you go out and preach and tell everybody what just happened, they're not going to believe it just like they did not believe and see that Elijah had already come in John the Baptist. If they didn't see John the Baptist as Elijah, if they only wanted to harm him, you think they're going to believe you and see me as the Christ? Of course not. I mean, just as, I mean, these crowds and these scholars, they, they, they claim like they knew everything. And if they did not recognize John the Baptist as the returning Elijah, they're not going to recognize Jesus. They're not going to see him as the Messiah. And and this is a common theme. Remember, it's a common theme throughout all of the Old Testament prophets. That's what we saw in the second Kings. These sons of prophecy that plagued Elijah and Elisha, they react the same way that the Pharisees and the scribes do. I mean, I think this teaching from Jesus is important for us as the church, even now. And there's two things here I think it's important for us as we close this. And what is it that we take away from this interaction? I think many in the church, and I'm going to emphasize this, many in the church are blind to the truth of who Jesus is because their hearts are hard to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. People in the church just like people in Israel, great teachers of the law. They were blind to the truth of God's revelation and His glory. I mean, likewise, I mean, many in the church, don't we misinterpret God's Word through our earthly lens, our worldly lens of understanding? That's what happened here with the scribes and the, and the, and the Pharisees. As the disciples in verse 10, they were pointing, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? They were dependent on man's interpretation and understanding of God's ways. I mean, just as these scribes and Pharisees look for a physical or literal Elijah to come back as a sign of the coming Messiah, I think, too, that we, the church, we look for a physical, literal fulfillment of end times prophecy concerning the second coming of Jesus. It's almost as if end times prophecy has become its own religion. Now, let me pack up here. We are, as Christians, we do have the eternal hope of the end times that Christ will come and take his church home. That is biblical and that is part of our hope. But do we misinterpret what God is saying in His Word to the level that it becomes its own religion? And that's all we focus on? That's perhaps may have been what had been happening in in this day with Jesus and His disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees, clearly there were some that were looking for the end times prophecy, and here's what the Old, Old Testament prophets say, and here's what literally will happen, and this must happen or God won't be here. Does that sound familiar? I mean, many in the church interpret Scripture literally all the time. Now, 
before you start throwing tomatoes and have a meeting after church, let me <laughs> clarify here. Now, now, there's many passages of Scripture that must be interpreted literally. There are many passages that must be interpreted literally. And, and there's, there's great error in using allegory as a hermeneutic of all of Scripture. There's places where allegory is beneficial. There are places where allegory is not. Just like there are places in Scripture where literal interpretation is appropriate, there are other places where literal interpretation is not. However, the greater way to see Scripture, a more true spirit of God's Word that must be seen over a rush to interpret every passage of Scripture literally, is that we see what is that God's word has a greater reality and a greater truth that we cannot understand on our own. We depend on his spirit. We depend on his grace. We depend on that understanding of scripture that only God himself can give. And when we emphasize literal interpretation for all passages, I think we very often impose, here's the problem, we impose our 21st century literal lens upon an ancient-minded thinking. That can be an error. When was this book written? Over centuries and millennia. It wasn't written in the 21st century. How many of us think like an ancient person thinks? Yet when we insist on always, I'm just emphasizing always, every word must be literally translated in our modern day understanding. We miss the bigger picture. That's what these scribes and these uh, Pharisees, they missed it in verses 10 through 13. The disciples were confused. Wait a minute. Our teachers tell us Elijah must come. That was a literal understanding. Elijah did come, but not the way you thought he was. See, God's ways are much bigger than ours. And there's truth in Scripture that is much bigger than the way we see truth. Our truth is not God's truth. (laughs) And we can really mess it up if we're not careful. This is why we must depend upon God in His ways. We must depend on the Holy Spirit. We must depend on the grace of Christ to get us to perhaps even begin to glimpse a, a hope of His glory. I mean, why does Jesus reveal that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy of the returning Elijah? The second part of verse 12, I think, helps us see what Jesus' lesson is. At the end of, at the second half of verse 12, as he talks about Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, listen to this, but they did to him whatever they pleased. We know what John Baptist's end was, was not pleasant. And so the theme of suffering here is important. Look here, verse 12, but did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. This is the lesson Jesus wants the disciples to see. And this is the lesson we have to take from this text. The Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. The ones who knew it all, who understood Scripture their way, Christ will suffer at their hands. That's why Jesus hindered the disciples from preaching and sharing about the God, about the transfiguration. He held them back because if they had gone out prematurely, 
then the suffering that Jesus endured, then there would have been greater confusion for the people. They would have been more confused about who Jesus was. I mean, the theme here of suffering continues in Jesus' revelation to His disciples. These disciples and the scribes were looking for a glorified return of Elijah and for the glorified coming of the Messiah. And they were looking for a literal return of a man named Elijah. And they were looking for a literal coming of a man that they thought was the uh, Messiah. And this was their literal interpretation of the Old Testament prophets. And Jesus is revealing here, you missed it. But Jesus once again shows that the true spirit of God's word is always more than our literal takeaways from God's word. Anytime that we get prideful and say, I, this is what Jesus is saying. And there's a literal this, this, this. And we start giving a timeline of this must happen. This must happen. This must happen. Oh, and here's what it's going to look like. I think Jesus is sharing a very a big caution here. I mean, Jesus here, he, he emphasizes the spirit. I mean, how many heresies have corrupted the church throughout its history because of literal interpretation of one passage out of context? Thousands of heresies. Because one verse of scripture was interpreted in a literal manner out of context of what God was saying. That's what, that's what Jesus is cautioning the disciples about here. He's actually protecting them. Don't go and tell everyone about this, this transfiguration because you don't fully understand what happened. And I don't want more confusion for the people. I think this teaching from Jesus is important here. I mean, whereas Jesus was glorified in white raiment and he shone bright like the sun on the mountain, his greater glory would come in his suffering and in his resurrection. In other words, what Jesus is saying here, verses 12 and 13, the suffering is the greater revelation of God's grace. And he doesn't want that to be muddied. Because human minds can comprehend, I mean, actually, human minds cannot comprehend this level of divine revelation. I mean, we see greater glory in the miraculous and the mythical events of religion, but God's divine revelation is beyond all of this. The greater transfiguration moment will, will not be this one event on the mountain with Elijah and Moses. The greater moment of glorification will be after the resurrection. And there and only there, Jesus will have a glorified resurrected body that will be better, bigger, and more revealing than what happened on the mountain of transfiguration. And that's why Jesus wanted to hold them back a little bit. I mean, the presence and the essence that overcomes death and the separation of sinful man from God the Creator is, is fixed here. That's the greater vision. Remember, John's suffering was prophesied in Malachi, but these scribes and Pharisees and the disciples kind of skipped over the suffering part of Malachi's prophecy. <laughs> Jesus' suffering was prophesied in Isaiah 53 in the suffering servant passage, but the religious leaders and the teachers kind of skipped over the suffering servant part. I mean, both were prophesied and both were necessary. So how do we wrap this up here? I mean, the church will carry out the same preaching of John the Baptist 
The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That was Matthew 3, 3. Those were the words of John the Baptist. And we, the church, are expected and we are to be prepared by our Lord and to prepare the way of our Savior in the wilderness of this lost and fallen world. That is our charge. But just as Jesus here, he embodied the power of God and he fulfilled in this physical reality of the world, so too will the church do the same. We're, we, we are called to be similar in how Christ was revealed here because the kingdom of heaven is established in the transformed hearts of the church. Not some monument on top of a mountain. I mean, this transformation has a purpose in the preaching in in this sinful culture we live in, but this preaching will bring about great suffering and not many in the church today understand the reality of the suffering that will accompany the truthful proclamation of the gospel. And Jesus is cautioning his disciples here. You don't understand what you're asking. Let me teach you a little bit more and let me prepare you a little bit more. So how do we take this home? When we look here at John, there's another passage that will help us understand this, and this will be the last thing. We'll close with this. The disciples in Jesus' inner circle here, they did not understand this reality at first that Christ must suffer. And this is why Jesus delayed their preaching and their, and their witnessing of what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration here in Matthew 17. John chapter 12, 16 actually gives us another scene to see how the Holy Spirit revealed things to the disciples with greater clarity after Jesus was glorified in his resurrection. John 12, 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So in this moment of the transfiguration, had the disciples gone out immediately and witnessed about this, they would have had, they wouldn't have had great clarity. It was only after the resurrection that the greater clarity and understanding of who Jesus was came to the disciples. So then and only then were they permitted to go preach and share the gospel. I mean, Christ was prophesied to suffer in his redemption for all sinful men. And suffering is the divine revelation that these disciples were missing. John the Baptist suffered as part of God's revelation. Jesus suffered even greater as part of God's revelation. And likewise, we the church, we will carry on the work of our Lord and suffer greatly as part of his revelation to the world. Are we ready for that lesson? I think until we're ready for that, I don't think that we're ready to truly and honestly and faithfully preach the gospel just like these disciples were held back by their Lord. You've not experienced the true revelation yet. Wait until you go through the suffering with me. Then you may tell people the truth. I mean, we're to carry on the work of our Lord and suffer greatly just as he suffered, we share in his suffering. And these disciples would suffer greatly as martyrs and as witnesses of the church. What a privilege it is to suffer. And what a privilege it is to gain clarity of God's divine revelation about his son. 
And until we're willing to humbly submit to that, we don't have true clarity yet. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And your, and, your, and your son Jesus is teaching his disciples a, a very important lesson. And Lord, I think you're teaching us a very similar, more important lesson. We may think we understand truly God's ways. We may truly think we understand exactly what you're doing and how you're doing it. But Lord, if we're not careful, we're going to be like the Pharisees and the scribes. We're going to be like the sons of prophecy that hounded Elijah and Elisha. Lord, caution us every step of the way. We, 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 do, we do depend on you to give us clarity. We do depend on you to give us insight. We depend on you to give us direction. But Lord, show us humility in this. Show us the humility necessary for us to see clearly your ways. Teach us the way Jesus has taught his disciples. Help us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.